Where's the thing? So tonight I I want to talk, hopefully rather simply, basically the bottom line is, I just want to encourage you to keep going. That's it. So what I I want to talk about is uh, really different ways, certainly not exhaustively, that this simple moment-to-moment awareness, how can it be so powerful and transformative? Remember last night, or at some point, Steve was saying that what we're really starting from, the angle we're beginning from, and the instructions and the way we're talking about this particular um, technique or form of practice, is from the wisdom side, from the understanding side. And if you remember when he talked about right view, he said that understanding is what frees our minds and hearts from suffering. And the, really the only tool, you could say, <clears throat> or technique that we're really offering or talking about here is just this simple recognition of moment-to-moment mindfulness, moment-to-moment awareness, right? And we're saying this, this purifies the heart and mind. This leads to the understanding that frees us from suffering. Has that been your experience so far? There might have been moments, huh? If there's even a moment, that's already great because then we get a sense of how it works. But I just want to talk a bit about, you know, how can, how can this simple awareness moment-to-moment awareness, the steadiness of awareness, be so transformative? And what gets transformed anyway? So, and some aspects of right view again. I think Steve said, but it always bears repeating, that all of our suffering that arises is not because of how things are, It's not because of somehow we need to change things in the world. But all of the suffering, not all of the pain, pain will come, but all of the suffering, this is how the Buddha sees it, saw it, arises because we misperceive, we recognize wrongly our experience of ourselves, of so-called others, of the six sense doors. We, We perceive incorrectly, what we perceive, we think about. So we think about and describe our experience incorrectly. And then we respond, we react in the way that maybe not consciously, but through habit, we think is going to make us happy. And the responses coming out of misperception and confused thinking keep us confused and suffering. And so when the Buddha talks about freedom from suffering. And what we're talking about here isn't about um, some way to fix it all so that it's all okay. Like I was saying in one of the groups, you know, it's not that somehow finally we hit that moment where everything is like, ah, it's all over. Thank God we've got it. You know, we're waiting for that. Secretly, look and see if you're waiting for that. It's not what it's about. And awareness or enlightenment isn't about somehow escaping from this world to a better place. The Buddha woke up in this world, lived in this world. We awaken into this world, in this mind and body, but recognizing with different eyes, using eyes as a metaphor, recognizing accurately. It's, um, I mean, we can't even imagine how something that sounds so simple could so completely change our understanding and the way we live our life. But it does. And the basis, what allows us to even begin to recognize accurately. And you may not, you don't have to believe me, mostly we don't even know we're recognizing inaccurately. That's actually the delusion, the moha, the root of our problems. We, as I would like to say, friends and I, we have this uh, little saying, we don't have a clue. 
a clue that we're recognizing inaccurately. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and how sati, mindfulness, which we've been calling awareness here, I may talk more about that tomorrow, is just that moment of awareness that's free, what we're calling intelligent awareness, free from bias, free from assumption, free from opinion, just, it's like this. It seems so nothing, right? So mundane. That, that's the seed. That's the incredibly powerful seed of the steadiness of that, that can just turn our understanding of ourselves and the world around, that completely transforms. It's not really that we're transformed. It's that our understanding is transformed. It comes in line with the way things are, the way things have come to be. So, so to start by talking about the sense of right view or how we don't understand that we're perceiving inaccurately. And I love, I actually really like right view as a translation of the Pali Samaditi. View as a metaphor is view is really how we see things. So we're using see as a metaphor for understand, right? It's not about actually seeing with the eyes. Excuse me. But right view is really the sense of how we understand ourselves in the world. The view we hold of how things are. And I just find this fascinating to explore because I would say often, frequently, most of the time, we have all kinds of views about ourselves in the world that we, we just assume they're true. That's where we get confused and lost. Right view, we just, how we perceive, the, the Buddha had a, a great order, he said, what we perceive is just that simple recognition, tree, person, bell, oh, that's Carol. What I perceive, what we perceive, and that's already complicated. That can be misperception. What we perceive, we think about. We make a story, this is what it means. What we think about forms into a view of, yes, this is how it is. Mostly we're not thinking, yes, this is how it is. We just know that's how it is. And when different views of the world come in, meet each other, that's where so much of the conflict in the world comes from. It doesn't have to be conflict. But we all have used just seeing from our different cultural backgrounds. We grow up and we grow, have different views of things, of how things are, without even knowing how it's different than somebody else. And one of the joys and um, complications of multiculturalism is trying to first see your own view, understand others, see where it comes in, but then we always want to think, well, mine's right, though. I'll try and understand these other guys. You know, I'll make allowances. But this is really how it is. So I'll tell you a little story. I just was telling this last week in Barry, but <clears throat> I liked it for this sense of view. How we perceive, how we think about, is shaped then by the views we're believing, we're holding of the world, of how things are, of who we are. So this is a few years ago, I was in Burma, um, with a few friends, <clears throat> two are Western women who are nuns and the rest of us lay people. And we had, um, we were at a, a kind of a, a ceremony where Donna, Donna uh, offerings were being given to a group of villagers who had lost a lot in the cyclone. So there's like big offerings of food. It's like a whole ceremony. These things are done very formally in Burma. And they're kind of like a happy celebration time. Okay, so that was the, the setting. And always 10 million photographs are taken every time there's any kind of Donna generosity. It's just a million photographs. So we got back and we were looking in uh, one of our friend's cameras with photographs of, you know, different aspects of that day of us standing there handing out medicine and food or whatever and other people there. And on a few of the photographs, there were these very um, exact circles of light very precise circles, not like smudges or little things. And they were just kind of on different ones of us in the photograph. So I looked at it and I kind of said, oh, that's funny, I wonder what that is. Then my friend who uh, speaks Burmese and has spent many years in Burma, you have to remember Burma, the, the majority of the Burman 
ethnic group, which is where we were, our Buddhists, growing up in a Buddhist culture. So there's a complete faith in the Buddhist worldview, different realms of existence. It's just, just, that's just how it is. To us, that might be quite strange, but that's just how it is. So my friend said, oh, well, that's Davis. That's how Davis, Davis are celestial beings. That's how Davis show up on photographs. I was like, really? Then our third friend, also a nun, but she has a, a PhD, she's a, a botanist, PhD scientist, you know, very time. She goes, that's not Davis. Don't you know that's the way that the light reflects and there's probably a little drop of water in the lens and then and it's all about, and she went on to a whole, you know, five-minute scientific explanation. Who knows? That's what's it. Who knows? Not who's right. That's what we want to do, figure out who's right. This is just how views... The perception colors how we think about it, and the perception's already colored by the views we're, we're living by that we don't even know. So we thought that was funny. Who knew? that All the Burmese people would go, oh, yeah, sure, that's Davis. They came back to the West, and I was showing to some friends at IMS, and they go, there's no way. Are you kidding that? And then they'd come up with another, see that light from that window, and see this, and it's just her camera. But then we looked on other cameras at the same time, same pictures, and they had it too. And since then, I've seen different photos of unusual situations that have that. Like just last year, I was, there's a photo of me and a friend with this incredible old Sayadaw's like a um, word for teacher, like Ajahn or Rinpoche, who's about 98 years old. He lives up in the Sagain Hills, and he just oozes metta. He's one of the most amazing beings. He's been there since... His whole life, he remembers when there were tigers roaming around in Sagain, and he would walk down on his arms around once a day, this huge walk. So anyway, he's an amazing guy. Okay, there were a lot of those in that picture. I started to think, you know, <laughs> maybe it could be Davis. <gasps> Who knows? So my point is, the awareness, a moment of awareness, is from that, that sense of, Who knows? That's not so comfortable for us. It's like more comfortable to land in the knowing, even if it leads to conflict, and never mind conflict with another person, conflict with our own experience. So this sense of what we're cultivating, the quality of awareness, is this, this willingness, this freshness of presence, just in one moment, you don't have to try and hold it all day, of who knows. Whatever it is that's arising, in your experience. And so you may start to notice how many views come in when you're in conflict with your experience. They're going to back, well, this isn't, shouldn't be happening. Second day of a retreat, shouldn't be this sleepy. It's because of, nah, 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 you know, fill in the blanks. And then we go, well, I shouldn't be thinking this. I'm getting lost in that. You know, I shouldn't be. Why? Why shouldn't, you know? Because... There is no, it shouldn't. This is what's happening. As Byron Katie says, when you fight with reality, you lose. This shouldn't be happening. It should be happening because it is happening. In this moment, this is what's happening and there's no way around it. So the moment of mindful awareness is just, oh, it's like this. And if a view comes in, it's because of this, this, and the other. Fine. Recognizing that view is the next arising thought rather than we just automatically believe it. But so this sense of recognizing incorrectly, responding out of the thoughts of that incorrect recognition forms a view and then that view then colors our perception and it keeps on circling, it keeps on circling. So that's just like a, a, a little example of how this works. In the, the big picture, the misperceptions the Buddha always speaks of, I'm just mentioning, I'm not going to go into them tonight, but that we, we perceive constant change. We don't perceive that. We perceive things as permanent. You perceive, well, I know it's going to change later. Perceive it as permanent. We don't perceive the unsatisfactory quality of experience. Somehow we think it's going to do it for us. We don't perceive 
the the lack of substantial, separate, inherent self-existence in things. We think we see not only ourselves, but especially ourselves, as separate, self-existing, unchanging. And that feels comfortable and safe, but actually these mis- misperceptions are giving rise to our continuing misunderstanding and responding to simple experience in ways that really increase our confusion and suffering. Don't believe me. I mean, you can believe me or not, it won't do any good because we can read this, we can hear this. And it's useful, as Steve said, it's, it's, it's beginning knowledge to help us look. Then we can think about it, well, maybe it makes sense. It's worth having a look. But it's the steadiness of moment to moment, just that open recognition of awareness of what's happening without needing to make sense of it, without needing to have this experience fit neatly into all my little patterns. Or if you need it, you just notice the needing. That, that quality of, is it Davis? Is it the moisture in the lens? Is it possible to just be really present and open without needing to know? It's just stepping into the unknown in each moment. So the, this, this misview, really, the deep view, you could say, of misperception that the Buddha talked about that I would don't say guides all of us, but it's, it's under there, probably for most of us, is, is the belief, you could say, or the trust in, in what's called samsara, right? Samsara being the seemingly endless round of looking, wanting, getting, or not getting, leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing, the so-called endless round of rebirth. And you don't have to believe different realms of existence, but birth after birth, moment after moment. I'm going to read this from um, Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. I've been liking this a lot lately. He says, the Buddhist teachings describe three fundamental attitudes which can be practiced together as a whole. The renunciation, he's talking about, renunciation, compassion, and pure perception, wisdom. I'm going to talk about what he's calling renunciation tonight, the way he's talking about it, not what you might be thinking. Is that the, is the foundation, the root of all the subsequent stages of the path, implies the strong wish to free oneself, not only from your immediate sorrow, but more so from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara, meaning the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. So how does that manifest, the wish to free oneself from that? It manifests as a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment, I think the disillusionment word is important, with this endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. You say again, that I think is a very succinct, and I like it, definition of samsara. It's kind of the cycle we are so often caught in of the seemingly endless quest for gratification, self-gratification, for approval, for profit, for getting something, for status, basically wanting something, right? Seemingly endless. Not, uh, not saying, the Buddha's not saying, this is bad, you should hate wanting, you should hate yourself for wanting, and you should stop it right now, <laughs> right? No. Why do we do this? Because in our twisted perception, that's the, that's the place, the refuge is that's like whispering the message, this is what's gonna make us happy. This seemingly endless quest, just you don't get this thing, but the next one will do it. This particular sitting was unpleasant, but the walking will be better. This retreat so far is a washout, but maybe the next time. <laughs> that lunch, I don't really like chickpeas, but dinner could be better. You know, or you can go on the aversive side, but it's the same thing. 
And without this this moment-to-moment simple awareness of just watching that process, what's so fascinating is when I see it, you laugh. It's not like, you're not all thinking, I can't, I can't relate to that at all. Maybe you are. <laughs> can't relate at all. Okay, then could go either way, right? But still, it keeps seducing us. Not even seducing us. It's like it's whispering, this is the way. Why? What helps us see through it? And that's where we come back to awareness. Not awareness with the idea, I need to stop this. But just to turn our attention, as long as we're caught in that flow of samsara, part of the effect of it is, it keeps us looking outward, so to speak, towards the object, towards what's happening, right? And another simple way that the Buddha described how we get caught in this, just the habits of our mind, and you've all seen this, and I've talked about this a lot, you all know this, the sense of how all day, as Steve said, just six things are happening, right? You remember what the six things are? Yeah, (laughs) over and over and over and over. Thinking, mental experiences, they're happening over and over. And you see how fast stuff is happening? And our habit all day, and not on retreat, our whole life, what we're practicing when we're not recognizing it is something comes, or a, a sight. It's mildly pleasant or unpleasant. Mostly we don't notice that, of course. But the habit is, oh, that's so pretty. You know, there's just this leaning into it. It's not like you abandon your life and go running after it. Just this subtle, oh, that's nice. We'll look at that a little more. And a sound come that's unpleasant. And it can just be this subtle, we don't even know, oh, I don't like that, you know? Not even the big aversion, but don't like that. The neutral, or Steve was talking about how much of our experience in the day is so mundane that we just don't even notice it. And that's even getting more in our culture, isn't it, with all the, with all the media and all this stuff. God forbid there should be 30 seconds, you know, when something isn't coming in. And so we, we don't even notice that. So this is, it's like a habit of response, right? That's just going on all the time. And I'm not saying it's bad or good. I'm just saying this is what happens. And what it can lead to in terms of the way we think about experience and the views that get inculcated in the background, that it reinforces this habit, is that first we're, we're... deriving meaning from the objects, from what's happening. And it inculcates the sense the pleasant is basically good or acceptable. When you think about enlightenment, do you think about your back hurting? When we think about it's going well, you know, you've had a sitting where you're just filled with anger and rage and you're describing, oh, that's great, that's a great sitting. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's not what I thought of as a great sitting. You know, it just inculcates the sense that that's what happiness is. That's what's right. The whole, the pleasant. It doesn't help in a way that wholesome mental states are actually more pleasant too, but that's another story. But the fact that it has to be pleasant to be good, that gets in there. And when difficult stuff, unpleasant stuff is happening, it's so easy that the mind responds with some way or other, this is wrong, the world out there is wrong, or I'm wrong because this is happening, and to do this right, whatever it is, this needs to be fixed. I'm not saying we can't change things in the world. I'm saying, in this moment, this is happening. That's the way it is. I say, no, this shouldn't be happening, and it's only happening because I'm bad, I'm stupid, the world, you know, we're just lost in aversion. This and the neutral doesn't even exist. So we're really in the state of disconnect from what's actually going on. And so, very, both in a very gross way, but also more and more subtly, the view that right is pleasant and unpleasant is bad. And that the way to happiness is this samsaric search for more and better things. Whether the pleasant is status 
or money or people liking you or getting things. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the search itself that's taking us away from the, ah, this is what's happening now. Things as they have come to be in this moment, recognizing accurately moment to moment is the place, is the avenue to freedom. And when we're caught in this samsaric spin without recognizing it, thinking that what we're doing, we're like trying our best to be happy, but we're just feeding the confusion. How to get out of it? Then we we bring the same mind. Okay, it's bad. How can I get rid of it? Now, bringing in that awareness, watch the whole process. Not just once, I'm sorry to tell you, but 10 million billion times. Each time fresh, each time new. And this is the steadiness of knowing is where the wisdom comes. It's really quite amazing. Also humbling. So I'll tell you another little, another little story about that. Of just, how just recognizing how the samsara works from my own life. A little embarrassing, but never mind. Since everyone who knows me knows this anyway. So in terms of thinking that what we're doing is to bring us happiness or joy or, you know, comfort or whatever. So I happen to be a big fan of watching professional tennis, professional men's tennis. I'm a complete non-athlete. I don't know why, but anyway, I'm a big fan of this. So this is something... I do for enjoyment, right? I do because it's going to make me happy. No, no one else cares. Doesn't do anybody else any good. So there's the, the belief unspoken that this is a really enjoyable aspect of my life. And, you know, someone spends a fair amount of time doing it. So, I mean, not that much, okay. But, so last, was it last year? Last year when I first realized this, as I started, I was just... I went through the whole process last summer with just more steady awareness. I don't think it's bad or wrong, so I didn't have any judgment about it. But it was during time of Wimbledon, which is one of the big tennis matches, one of the most important ones. And of course, I have a favorite player, because otherwise you don't suffer as much, you know, if you don't care who wins. You've got to <laughs> care who wins to really get in there, you know. And so... so um, and friends who know me say that when I'm watching tennis, if it's two guys playing, I know who they are, but it's not my favorite player. Oh, I just am watching and I'm appreciating the skill. It's fine. My favorite player is playing. I'm a nervous wreck. Really. Sometimes I have to like leave the TV and go take a walk if it's like, you know, the fourth set of a five set match. I can't bear it. You have to go take a walk and come back and calm down and then I can, you know, watch it. Maybe. It's really so, so. This was Wimbledon, and um, my favorite player, who's you know one of the main guys. Anyway, he Roger Federer. He actually won it that year, last the last year, the year before, like whenever. And I can't remember; it all blends. But anyway, he won it, and it was a huge thing to win it because it made him have the most the most um, wins of anybody in the Grand Slams. It also meant he went back to number one. And in the tennis world, these were huge things. So all the stress of watching it, I was noticing just more clearly without judgment. I don't actually enjoy watching the match. As I said, I have to leave. I'm stressed out of my mind. It's really unpleasant. But then I can't not know what's happening either. So I'm running back and looking and maybe I'll just look on the computer. What's the score? And I'll say, oh my God, he just lost. He got broken twice. I can't stand that. I'll go away. Coming. Oh, he's up again now. Okay, that's good. And then I'll watch, you know. I mean, it's so bad the year before somebody on the board of IMS called me up the day he lost in the quarters and said, I'm so sorry, Carol. This is a guy I hardly even knew. <laughs> it's really embarrassed. Anyway. So that's the best it could be. He won Wimbledon. He was number one. It's like, there's like, in terms of samsara and that, that's the most you could have. You're happy. And I really saw how long does that happiness last? Maybe two days. Because right away you got to start worrying about the Olympics. (laughs) And then after the Olympics you got to worry about the U.S. Open. And it keeps going, going, going like that. I thought, oh my God. You know, so I sort of knew that in the back of my mind. But the awareness, like watching it without any judgment, just look at that. And I thought this was making me happy. So 
that quality of awareness lets us see what's really going on. But do you see the quality that has to come into the awareness is just interest, curiosity. If we start out with the assumption, this is wrong, this is bad, you're not going to see clearly. If we start out with the assumption, oh, this is how it should be happening, and, and think about this in your practice. Oh, this is how it should be. It's so subtle. You just give this little nudge, trying to nudge in the direction of how it should be going. Shuts down clear seeing immediately. So when I talk about awareness as being radical, um, that's what I mean. It's like radically present with everything, with this open unknowing, how is it now? And it doesn't really have a quality of kindness. I like to talk about kind awareness, but awareness isn't kind, it's just what it is. But for us as humans to talk about it, you could say something like the, the quality of the awareness we're talking about is almost like a quality of listening. You know what I mean? Like we're just, we're just hearing. Or Ajahn Sumedho likes to talk about awareness receiving experience. You know, rather than us going out and creating it somehow. So awareness is just receiving hearing or receiving judging or receiving sadness or receiving frustration or just oh, frustrations like this. And there was a kind of a slogan on NPR a few years ago when they were doing a series of um, interviews with, about different people, different people's lives. Just, and so the slogan was, listening is an act of love. And I like that for the quality of awareness. I just think simple awareness, only this moment of whatever's arising, it's an act of love, an act of just complete surrendering. Oh, it's like this now. Couldn't be any other way. And it's not just to feel better in the moment, as I'm saying, but because the steadiness of awareness is what allows, as Steve was saying, wisdom to arise. The wisdom that arises from recognizing accurately. So back to the tennis, recognizing accurately all that stuff that goes on. It doesn't mean there's just so that. I continue to watch tennis, but I'm more aware as I'm watching it. It really, you know, it really isn't quite as fun as it used to be, I have to say. Of course, Roger's getting older and he's about to retire. Maybe it's that. But it really isn't quite as fun. I, I'm not negative about it, but I'm more aware, you know, and so I can kind of go, well, maybe I don't need to watch it right now. And that's a tiny example of what um, Dingo Kensi was saying, a kind of a, a disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval status. It's not saying, oh, it's bad and I'm bad. But, and it's not saying, I will now stop craving. Now that doesn't work, have you noticed? But it's this sense of, oh, I want to, you know, maybe not. The craving doesn't make sense in the moment of clear seeing. The aversion to things as they are makes no sense in the moment of clear seeing. Because it's, oh, this is how it is. And so the steadiness of awareness is what allows us to see the whole process. And seeing the process is what allows the wisdom, oh, craving just drops away for that moment. It's really quite amazing. And then that strengthens, it strengthens our trust in the whole process, our trust in awareness. There's a phrase I like to use a lot, polyphrase, called, the phrase in Pali is yata bhuta, which is usually translated things as they are. And there's a particular, I mean, in different lists of different kinds of insights, you know, there's all kinds of commentaries. There's one that's called yata bhuta jnana dasana, which is usually translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. I just want to talk about yata bhuta. Several friends whose understanding of Pali is a whole lot better than mine, which isn't hard, have told me that the the more precise def, uh, translation of yata bhuta, according to the, the, the verb, the, the tense of the verb, is things as they have come to be. And I really like that because we're only, there's only this moment, awareness arising, meeting, receiving, things as they have come to be in this moment, gives to me that sense 
things as they are, or when we're reacting, I like, I don't like, it's good, it's bad, what that also feeds is the sense of separate, unique experiences, doesn't it? This is here, it's bad, it shouldn't be here. Oh, this is nice, let's keep it going. And it keeps us looking outward to the experience, to the object. It keeps us involved in our relationship to the object. And what does it mean about me? That's the big delusion, right? What does this mean about me? Yata Buddha, things as they have come to be. I love it because what it gives to me is the sense of, of a more accurate sense. Of, there's no separate thing. I mean, how did this bell isn't some separate thing? If we start to just for a moment reflect on all the conditions that come together for this bell to be here in this moment. Where can you stop? You know, there's a who, who gave it here. It's been sitting here all this time. The spirit rock exists, that it's made out of a certain kind of metal that was mined in a certain place and all the men and maybe women who mined it and then the people who had to, to turn it into this certain kind of metal and then the people who transported it to the factory or whatever where they make this bell and then back to however many hundreds of years ago when these kind of bells were first designed and what's the cause for this bell and what made the people who donated the bell decide to donate it and what made the people who accepted it decide to accept it and because of spirit rock being here we're all here and how did each of us come to be here just you can't you can't separate anything and in this moment, as I said, it can't be any different because this is how it is. Things as they have come to be. So if I'm just allowing this, this um, kind of radical surrender awareness, just receiving things as they have come to be in this moment, to me it gives more, it gives more space and less personal reactivity because as so many things have come to be, we can bring in the curiosity, ah, this is the kind of curiosity that we bring in to the steadiness of our experience here. So you come in and you're sleepy in a sitting instead of, oh, now I'm sleepy bad. It's like things as they have come to be. Everything's arising in this moment lawfully due to all kinds of causes and conditions. The steadier our awareness is, the more we notice what those causes and conditions are. How we respond comes out of that seeing and then we notice what our response, what effect that has. And so the whole thing that just might have seemed haphazard or why me or I blew it again starts to just start to see everything is arising due to causes and conditions, affects the next thing. And with clear seeing, that recognition, that, that understanding unfolds naturally unfolds naturally. And this is, again, what it's so hard for us to trust. Our job is just this receiving, you know, letting awareness be an act of love, being willing to wake up in it again and again and again, and trusting that with the steadiness of awareness, the clear seeing, the um, right view arises naturally. You don't have to figure it out. And in fact, we can't, because we try to figure it out from what we already know. And if, you, do you remember Krishnamurti? Jack was telling me now, that someone sounds true, was telling him, nobody remembers Krishnamurti anymore. You have to stop quoting him. But <laughs> anyway, his first thing when he first kind of broke free from, anyway, it was, his, was freedom from the known. And I think that's a wonderful line in terms of awareness. It's freedom from the known. We sit down and our knee hurts. I know why my knee hurts. No, 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 no. Just wait. What's happening now? Freedom from the known. Open to discover. And then seeing, and the trust will build, that accurate recognition will give us the information that we need. And accurate perception leads to wise understanding. We try to figure it out. We're just going to go down the path we already know. In fact, Thich Nhat Hanh said, let's see if I have that. No, I don't. Anyway, Thich Nhat Hanh said that um, 
understanding does not arise as a result of thinking. He's talking about Dhamma understanding. It does not arise as a result of thinking, but as the result, but from the long process of conscious awareness. This thinking, thinking can express or contain some understanding, but it's too limited and rigid to actually hold much understanding. So I just say that to know that we can't think our way into it. God knows we'll try, and that's okay. Awareness just notices thinking. Now there's a little aside there. So, even when there's been times, and we've all had, I'm sure, where we have enough steady awareness to see through the seduction of this round of samsara. Haven't you all experienced a time when you really see, oh, wanting isn't doing it? Getting those M&Ms really didn't make my day, whatever it is. And as someone said yesterday, you know, it's, it's so obvious for a moment, and then we just forget again. Isn't that the most amazing thing? To me, that's the most amazing thing about how our minds work when they're in their confused state. Just a moment of simple awareness in that moment of clarity when you're not fighting against something or taking it personally or making a story. It's just, it's just like this. Doesn't it all seem so simple? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> just, just checking. It's like, ah. Oh. And in those moments, like when I say, oh, I've got to watch 10, I just, oh, I really don't want to. The sense of ease, the sense of presence and openness to the world and connection and freedom is so palpable. Why would I want to pick up that wanting again? It's so clearly suffering and constricting. Two minutes later, if you're lucky, you, we pick it up again. It seduced us again. You know, we've heard the siren song again. No, come with me and you'll be happy. (laughs) How? Come. It really is amazing to me. And I would say, if anything, all these years of practice, one of the things that's really strengthened is my deep respect for the power of habits in the mind. The habits of this, of this wanting, of this aversion to the unpleasant, of, of evaluating our happiness on that, and, and getting involved in every experience and thinking, what does that mean about me? How does this make me happy? How does this make me sad? How does that person walking across the floor so mindfully, what does that mean about me? Do you notice that? It's amazing. Then you hate it. No need to hate it. It's not personal. Everyone's doing it. It's not personal. It's like, wow, look at how the mind works. I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. This isn't worth paying attention. What does it mean about me? What does it mean about me that I don't like that? Wow, they really like this music. I don't like that music. What does that mean about me? What does it mean about them? It's like exhausting. Just like, ah, it's like this music, you know? So simple. Why do we jump out of it again? It's amazing. So the, the force of habit just sucks us right back in. It's in a way that kind of um, the comfort of the familiar, like where do we really take refuge? We're talking about the difference between refuge and comfort. But it's like, where do we take refuge in a way? What do we, and this is back with right view, not even conscious, when we're in stress or when we're confused or when something's different, whatever, What's the place our mind and heart, our habit of mind goes to for refuge? You know? And so often what we've been practicing, most of us, is something's really difficult. Our refuge is get the heck away from it. And when, when, we, when you think, well, of course, that makes total sense, doesn't it? I, didn't, I don't think I should sit with pain. If I can get away from it, I should. That makes sense, Right? So what's wrong with that? Refuge in the pleasant. Well, if I could have pleasant rather than unpleasant, I'd go for it. If I could have food I like versus food I don't like, I'd go for it. What's the problem with that? We take refuge in that. We really believe it's comfortable. And then the other form of delusion is all the stories, 
we tell about ourselves, the assumptions we make. I think I mentioned yesterday talking about delusion. One of the aspects of delusion Tejani was talking about is assumptions we make about people. But notice the assumptions you're making about yourself a hundred million times a day, you know? Oh, I can't be aware because I'm no good, I don't understand, I'm too tired, this other practice is better, I don't know what the hell they're talking about, I had too much to eat. Or I can be aware, and I am so good because of all the practice I've done, because I'm such a great person, because whatever. Or who cares about that anyway, but the fact that I ate too much at dinner just shows what a kind of weak and, you know, and blah, 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 right? You sit down and your breath is choppy. Oh, blah, 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 your whole life. Because your breath is choppy. All of it just based on assumptions. The steadiness of awareness cuts through all of that. Ajahn Chah. This is from Ajahn Chah. He says, we get so absorbed in objects and our reactions to the objects that we neglect to notice how the mind is working. This is our whole practice here, getting interested in how the mind is working. And yet, the mind is where suffering and peace are found. And so the simple technique, the simple thing, I'll just read a little bit from him. Escaping from suffering means knowing the way out of suffering. It doesn't mean running away from wherever suffering arises. By doing that, you just carry your suffering with you, right? But don't we think getting out of suffering means running away? So he says, um, talks about sense contact. Most of us are either afraid of contact, like it's going to cause suffering, Or either that, or we like to have contact, but we don't develop wisdom from it. Instead, we repeatedly indulge ourselves through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, delighting in the objects and getting lost in them. These sense bases can entice us into delight and indulgence, or they can lead to knowledge and wisdom. So we take everything as practice, even the bad things. When we talk of practice, we don't mean taking those things that are good and pleasing to us. That's not how it is. In this world, some things are to our liking, some are not. Usually, whatever we like, we want. Usually, whatever we don't like, we don't want to see or even know about. But the Buddha wanted us to experience all of these things. Loka we do. Look at this world and know it clearly. That's our practice. Look at this world and know it clearly. If we don't know the truth of the world clearly, and we're the world, this mind and body, we don't go anywhere. Living in this world, we must understand the world. The noble ones of the past, including the Buddha, all lived with these things. They lived, they lived in this world among people and realize the truth right here, nowhere else. That's really our practice. Just to meet suffering in the heart, to meet happiness in the heart, right here. When suffering arises in the mind, awareness is right here receiving it with that quality of interest. What is this? And how is it arising? Not by thinking about just the steadiness of awareness. We start to see how it arises. When happiness arises in the mind, awareness is right there. Happiness is like this. How does it arise? How does it end? Seeing that suffering arises and it ceases right where it arises. This is Ajahn Chah again. Happiness arises and it ceases right where it arises. Our job is just trusting this moment-to-moment receptive awareness to reveal yata bhuta, things as they have come to be. And amazingly enough, that is the seed that brings that clear seeing that brings to freeing the heart and mind. It's really amazing how that can happen.
And it does happen over and over, really noticing that. It's like a, it's like a shift of refuge. And we're practicing it here. That's really all we're doing here, practicing awareness, just the simple recognition of the knowing, right? We're just practicing it. I know you might be thinking, something better is supposed to happen. You're doing this, you're humoring us, but you're waiting for the real thing to happen. This is it. We're practicing moment-to-moment awareness. And each moment of recognizing, well, so what? Because we're focusing out on wanting something. We're in samsara. How do we step out of samsara? Oh, yata bhuta, things if they have come to be. With total presence and reception. Nowhere to go, nothing to change, nothing to do. Total wakefulness. And this moment, and this moment. We don't have to figure it out. I can't tell you what a relief that is. Because we haven't been doing such a good job if we had to figure it out. But a friend of mine, oh, here, let me just read this from Tejaniya, talking about this awareness, which is always available. That's how we're shifting our trust, our refuge, to recognize it's always available as soon as we remember. So this receptive awareness, we're not trying to create something. We're not rejecting what is happening. As things happen or stop happening, we don't forget awareness of them. We notice it stopped. We notice it starts. And I think this is quite interesting. Acceptance of an experience doesn't mean we stop being aware of it. Bring awareness along with it. I know often people talk about a difficult experience. Okay, I just have to accept it. You know, and accepting, you mean, okay, I can be with it. As if, okay, well, that's it, that's accepted. And a little bit, the mind shuts down onto the next thing. I did my task with this difficult one. I accepted it. What's next? No. What's happening now? Accepting is just, it's like this now. Does it change? Does it stay? Does something else happen? Who knows? Yata puta, this moment will lead to the next, and we never know what the next will be. So it's this constant opening into the unknown with full awareness. In terms of how we get sucked back into samsara with these habits of wanting and aversion to the pleasant and the unpleasant and the stories of me, there's just one, one thing the Buddha said in the sutta, I won't read the whole thing, but that I find both very important but incredibly poignant. It really, I feel this kind of sadness every time I read or think about this because it's so true, but it's so unnecessary. He says, oh, here it is. He's talking about our habits of reacting to the unpleasant with aversion, of reacting to the pleasant with wanting and of reacting to the neutral with just not knowing what's happened, how that all gets to be habits in our mind. The unenlightened, ordinary worldling, that's us. Or thickster, as I've heard it more accurately translated. I love that, thickster. How does the thickster react? We get all upset at the unpleasant. We love the pleasant. But this is what, what touches me so much. He said, when a, a thickster having been touched by a painful feeling, resists it and resents it, right? can relate to that. Then, in one who so resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against painful feeling comes to be a habit in the mind, right? It just comes to be a habit. And why does he... Oh, okay. And under the impact of that painful feeling and the resistance to it, he then proceeds to search for and enjoy sensual happiness. Right? You're feeling bad and you go to the refrigerator and have some ice cream. That's basically, you know, your back hurts and you go and take a hot bath, turn on a movie. You know, not that any of it's bad. See, our mind goes, no, not bad, but just to see the habit. So under the impact of the painful feeling, he proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. And this is the the part I find so poignant. Why does he do so? 
because an untaught whirling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. And that's samsara, right? It's like there's no other way out of our unhappiness, out of our suffering, except to go get something more pleasant. And in the moment of that looking, when we're just focused out there, it does it. Distracts us from the unpleasant, it changes it, we get the pleasant, and so that's the promise. We'll keep on doing it, keep on doing it. It keeps us looking outward. And so the shift of refuge is this willingness to be aware of the problem. Unpleasant, just what Ajahn Chah said. When suffering comes up, the awareness comes in right there at that suffering. And the refuge is the awareness. The escape from suffering isn't the escape from all unpleasant. It's that step out of that endless quest for pleasant into awareness itself. Oh, unpleasant feels like this. It doesn't mean we can't make an intelligent decision to change something. We can make a much more intelligent decision when it's not coming out of reaction. So it doesn't mean acceptance, you lie down and become a doormat. But it means we bring awareness in right here. That's the only way we're going to see clearly. And so the steadiness of mindfulness, the steadiness of awareness, with whatever's coming, whatever's coming, it gives us a kind of real freedom because we can stop like judging and censoring, saying this is okay to bring into my meditation and this isn't. I have to meditate so this can't be arising in my mind. I was talking to Alexis today. He said something. I just thought it was really great in terms of this. Uh, He said I could say this, I asked. So don't worry, I wouldn't quote any of you without asking. But he was talking about when he'd been sitting for some time with Utejaniya with a sense of where you're just bringing steady awareness to whatever arises. He said it felt like it gave him, it was so freeing because it gave him permission to be totally himself. To bring all aspects of mind are here in the practice, in the awareness, to be totally yourself in your practice. Nothing left out, nothing censored, but bringing awareness along with it. It's really an amazing kind of freedom. And how does this purify our heart and mind? You think if I'm just myself, well, all that stuff, we don't want to see, that's what's going to come up. As if it's not coming up anyway, right? Instead of it coming up and it's like, oh, receiving is an act of love. Listen to it. That's what's arising. See how it arises. What causes it? What are the effects? What are the thoughts? What happens next? It's all just part of a lawful process. It isn't personal. It brings so much freedom from this judging and the steadiness of awareness. How does it purify the heart and mind? Just that example I gave before, when we recognize accurately clinging and aversion as a response just don't make sense. They just don't make sense. We don't have to decide we're never going to be aversive again. It starts to drop. That, that thing that you always judge yourself about arises again. And then suddenly you're aware, you're aware of the judging and all. Suddenly there's a moment of, oh, look at that. It's just like this. I know why it came. Nothing else. You don't make that happen. It happens itself. One of our friends and colleagues, Guy Armstrong, he likes to say, I really like it. He said, it's what makes him um, believe and trust that reality is really um, beneficent. That when we recognize accurately, that doesn't increase our hatred and our dislike and our fear and our greed. When we recognize accurately, it's these suffering states that drop away, that lose their power. And what gets more trustworthy, what gets more obvious is compassion and metta and wisdom and equanimity. Naturally, we don't have to create it. It's really quite amazing. So, I was going to close with a quote from Samina, but I think it's just time to stop. And I'll just, the last thing I'll just say is, 
It's just this moment, simple opening into the present. No more than that, but every moment. Like Tejani has this big sign on his door, never give up. No striving, simple perseverance, no looking for result, but never give up. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.